Welcome to the Holy Smokes Podcast, a show about faith, friendship, fine tobacco and drink. I'm Steve Ryder. I'm in the Cigar Patio of Bourbon Brothers in Colorado Springs the day before the Holy Smokes Conclave starts. And so we're at the pre-Conclave events. We just left the study at Megan and Etienne Hardre's place. And I am with Tom Cacadellis. Tom, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Steve. So when I got to Megan and Etienne's, Buzz Leonard from the Pacific Northwest, Seattle area, he was like, have you met Tom yet? I'm like, no. He's like, you got to talk to Tom. You got to talk to Tom. And we had a chance to just kind of get to know each other a little bit. And I was like, yes, I definitely need to talk to Tom. And so I was like, hey, what if we just bolt Megan and Etienne's just a little bit early and head over to Bourbon Brothers and set up here before everyone starts showing up. So you'll start to hear people as, as they start to filter in from the hard rays, from the study. And uh, dude, thanks for being on, my man. Yeah, thanks. Sir. I appreciate it, man. It's like, you know, I've been, this has been a goal for me to get out here to the conclave for a few years. And I have, uh, an op- I had an opportunity to schedule it. And so it, it just fit perfectly. So wonderful. It's, it's really great to be here. All right, first question I always start every show with, or at least try to, what you smoking? I'm smoking a Romeo Julieta from uh, Havana, Cuba. Nice. Yes, How- sir. It's a little Corona. Yeah. It's got, you know, it starts off with a little pepper, but it's it really smooths out. Romeos are typically pretty medium, medium bodied with a lot of flavor, and they typically jump around a little bit, and you get the middle of it, and then a little, you get a little, you get a little burst of energy and it uh, shoots up the dial a little bit and then it, it, it typically finishes off pretty powerful so I generally set it down and kind of think about what's next <laughs> I am pulling out one of my seconds I got a box of I don't know I have a whole bunch of seconds that I got on a big order and I'm just pulling it out right now to open it up this one's a Maduro and I just had one of my Connecticut seconds at the hard rays and so yeah i'm burning nice. through some of these some of these do- no, when you get great yeah. dollar for dollar sticks. yeah that's what i like I, I like value i also like to i, I like to save to treat uh, yes, my humidors same. you know my, my my humidors like i've got this section where it's yeah i'm gonna go there if i'm gonna do something kind of celebratory the other side of that is um I've got the day-to-day cigars that I feel comfortable with sharing and love to do that. And um, over the years, the humidor's gotten significantly larger. And so... um, How big is your humidor right now? About 4,500 sticks, somewhere around there. Wow. That's impressive. So it's... um, But it's accumulation of, you know, 16 years of cataloging and we'll talk places around the world we'll talk about that and during rapid fire questions but you said that you were born in connecticut yes You're a northeast guy yeah i am i'm a yankee uh greek greek yeah Cacadellus, obviously yeah if you're if any member of your immediate family birth wise or immediately before that is greek then you get to call yourself greek <laughs> and then if you have a greek last name then it then, that <laughs> then you're really greek. It. yeah that's it yeah, my dad um, uh, was first-generation American. His dad immigrated really? here in 1912. A little offshoot of that is uh, I was at the um, 
I was at Drew Estate in Nicaragua some years ago, right around 19, about 2012, 2011, 2011. And uh, I was talking with Jonathan about it. And I said, well, why don't you blend a cigar while you're here? And I said, well, okay, let's do that. And so, uh, and so we did. And I knew it was going to be 2012 would be the 100th anniversary of my grandfather's mm-hmm. uh, coming, to the, coming US. to the U.S. So I designed a cigar as a shorter, sort of a petite Corona yeah. size, uh, like my grandfather smoked. And I titled it Immigrante, which basically means immigrant. Yeah. So, and so uh, Immigrante, I made, uh, we made probably 40 sticks. And um, back in 2011, gave my brother a few. And then uh, and I've been enjoying them annually. Yeah. So that's, that's, uh, Do you still that love was them? fun. You still have some. I still have four. Four. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're not going anywhere. Why it's annual now? When, when it has to be. <laughs> yeah. But that's uh, that what was my of, upbringing. What I kind mean, of a family? Yeah, my uh, my dad and mom were married fifty years, and he passed in two thousand four. Mm. And my uh, my dad really, they, my mom and dad smoked cigarettes. They never, my dad never really, he wasn't really much of a cigarette smoker either. But he did smoke some when he was in the service. He was a Marine, Second World War, and then. Then after that, he pretty much quit. Um, and then a few years after that, my mom did. But on my 16th birthday, my dad uh, took me to New York, a bunch of my friends. We went and saw uh, Jesus Christ Superstar. And then he took me to uh, Cattleman West, got me a big steak. And afterwards, he got me a cigar and he said, okay, you're a man. Now like, act like it. <laughs> and I said, okay, what does that mean? He goes, well, take responsibility of your life. Prepare yourself to be a husband and a father and uh, commit yourself to preserving the American dream. Wow. And, um, and I said, well, is that a man? He goes, he says, yeah, but then you got to defend it. Mm. And uh, so for the last, I guess now, 50 years, that message continues to ring in my, my heart mm. that really I think God used my dad to plant that seed to say you're going to have a part in that in the future and i have fortunately been able to contribute to some of that but but that was my upbringing my brother is you, five you years said, you, you you said you said the yeah. war i assume yeah. world war second, II. second world second he was a veteran yeah marine served in uh, four battles in the pacific uh Roya namur saipan tinian and iwo jima wow yeah wow Never got injured in the service, got bursitis wow. in his knees. Then he came back, and then he went back into the Korean conflict and got out. He served 11 years hmm. in the Marine Corps. And um, yeah. it was funny. He told me early on, he said, uh, I said, Dad, I think I'm going to take my commission in the, in the Marine Corps. He said, no, you're not. I said, well, Dad, I mean, you were a Marine. Why, why not? And he just went back and forth for a little bit. And he said, well, it's real simple, Tom. He said, only one person per family should ever have to survive Paris Island. And that's where he was trained for the Marine. He said, so you're not going in there. He said, you need to go in the Air Force. They got beds to sleep on. <laughs> so um, so I took, I, I, I took his advice, but I went in the Army and uh, stayed a few weeks. And then the Vietnam War ended and they kicked us out. I got an honorable discharge and, and I, I'm just grateful that I 
yeah had the chance but yeah but it was but it was really more of a, a kind of a time in my life where I was wanting to follow in his footsteps and I really didn't I really didn't it wasn't about being a marine as much as I just wanted to be like my dad wow yeah. so you had a great relationship with him growing yeah. up yeah it's funny because I, I I never knew a day in my life when I talked to my dad or was with him that he didn't tell me he loved me Wow. And didn't tell me uh, I was. He was proud of me, which is really unusual for that generation. Yeah, really unusual. He never got it, so he reacted the other way. Was it the Greek heritage that really? No, kind of, it was more. Was it? I think he realized how important it was to not keep your feelings hidden about that. Huh. Uh, he always knew his dad loved him, but he never got treated with the with the same verbal yeah. affirmation that he yeah. felt like was important. Yeah. And I think that was what really made him tell both my brother Carl and I how important it was to say he loved us. Yeah. And he felt free to physically show affection, hugs, kisses. He was always mm. on our team. Mm. He may not have always agreed with what we were doing, but he always was on our team. And that's pretty amazing. And I have an opportunity now to talk to men all the time about not only their relationship with their dad, but just their generally their relationship with their spouse, their kids, yeah. and uh, their parents. And I talk to them about how important it is to express your feelings while you can, because they'll you don't ever want to take a day for granted. Mm -hmm. It's very important to just say what you think about who you love and care about as much as you can, because you don't want to ever take that for granted. Totally. And dad never did. I mean, he valued that. In fact. Part of our, our journey uh, took us to Southern California to plant a church back in the 80s. And, and we took our two young kids with us, obviously. And my dad said, well, why, why do you have to take the kids? Why don't you can't leave the grandkids here? And <laughs> you can go and we'll, we'll take care of them. And, and uh, so that's how much connection yeah. he really family. felt with our family. Yeah. yeah. You said siblings? Yeah, I have one brother. Uh, Carl, he's a few years younger than I, and he is a Christian counselor with Grace Life Ministries up in Warrenton, Virginia. Yeah. What kind of kid were you growing up? Uh, sports. Sports all the time. I mean, every yeah. time we get our hands on a ball, yeah. we played something. Yeah. Basketball, wiffle ball, baseball. My dad got me in Little League. He, he, actually, he actually got me on a team playing Little League. Uh, and the coach didn't want to, I'm sure, I, I can think of the scene even right now. And he walked up to the coach and he told him, he said, I want, I want to get my son on the team. And he said, well, what position does your son play? And he said, well, he, you know, he can pretty much play all over the infield and outfield too if he needs to. He doesn't pitch. <clears throat> he said, well, we need a catcher. He said, so uh, do you think he'd be interested in doing that? And he said, well, can he get on the team if he is? And he said, yeah. Okay, well, then he'll be a catcher. <laughs> Challenging you. So he got me on it, and I caught from uh, Little League, 10 years old, until I got to college. Yeah. And then I fast-pitched uh, caught when we did prison ministry in Chino Prison in California. We'd take a fast-pitch softball team into the prison, and we had, a, we had a ringer for a pitcher. Yeah. And so I caught him, and... Uh, and in between the two games, we had a morning game and afternoon, we had lunch with them, and all the prisoners would gather around and we'd, we'd have somebody there to share their personal testimony of 
their faith in Christ and how that changed them. And uh, we saw many, this was a medium security prison, so it wasn't like yeah. the most dangerous, yeah. but yeah. but we went in on a monthly basis and for a couple of years, I would mm. go in with the team and we got to hear the testimonies of a lot of these guys that got saved early on when we came in and now we're sharing the gospel and starting Bible studies wow. in the prison after we'd been there a few years. So uh, yeah, so catching got me an opportunity and I saw how God used your physical abilities, your interests, your experiences, mm. all those things to leverage that's an opportunity important. to share the gospel. It's important. And that's, in one sense, why how I got into smoking cigars is because I knew I could leverage the opportunity just to sit with guys and just have a conversation and how that leveraged into a future conversation or even a present conversation about the gospel. Mm -hmm. And so I've often referred to cigars as social lubricants. They're the way that God uses to grease the conversation in order to make a way for the gospel. Yeah. And that was critical for my communication is in my relationship with guys is I wanted to always leverage what I had to share what God had done since I became a Christian. You mentioned college. Yeah, well, my conversion story really kind of came around in my high school years. Did you, did you, were you your know, parents? My parents were not believers. Okay. My neighbors were, and they prayed for my folks, prayed for my mom and dad. And then they, they uh, my mom and my brother, in 1970, attended the, the, uh, the first, the showing of the movie For Pete's Sake, which was a Billy Graham movie back in the, 60s and 70s mm -hmm. and uh, my brother and my mom attended that I was away at school and they um, they came home and our neighbors sat down with uh, my brother and my mom and led my mom and my brother to Christ and then um, I heard about it and so that summer I came home because I went away to a, a military high school I'll tell you a little bit about that but um, I came home that summer, and um, I got picked up for shoplifting in a store. And then I was driving a, a car, my parents' car, and I had been drinking, and I damaged the car. I didn't completely wreck it, but I damaged it. And I realized that in that three-week period that the direction of my life was not going the way I had intended for it to go. Mm. And so I realized something was missing. I wasn't sure what it was. I told my dad I thought I needed a psychiatrist, and he said, no, you don't, you don't need that. And I said, well, something's got to change because the things I want to do, I, I, I'm not doing. And Somewhere in the Bible, I yeah, think. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I realized that something had to change. And so yeah. uh, my mom said, well, why don't you go down to this little Jesus coffee house down on Liberty Street. I grew up in Danbury, Connecticut. Yeah. And on Liberty Street, they had this little Jesus coffee house back in the 60s. That was a big deal, 70, early 70s. And so uh, I went down there one night, and I got talking to the, the uh, folks that were kind of leading that ministry. And um, my mom said I should come here, and so I showed up. And it was, it was my babysitter growing up. She and her future husband were leading the ministry down there. Yeah, and so uh, I went back. I went to it, and I there was this real attractive girl that was there, 
And so I thought, well, you know what? <laughs> that's, that's hooked more, I think more, I, more guys in, I think into I need relationship to go back. God. <laughs> yeah, so I went back, and, uh, and I, I went back again. And I think the third or fourth time I went back, and Bob sat down with me, and he shared his personal story of how God had rescued him from a lifestyle that was uh, not pleasing to God. And so he shared his personal story of how he came to Christ. And it was June the 6th, 1972, that hmm. Bob shared the gospel with me and I received Christ as my Savior. When that happened, I knew something was different. I really did. I didn't know quite what it How was. How so? Well, something on the inside was changed. I, I, I felt clean. I felt different. I felt like uh, something had actually really happened. I mean, I had I had prayed before and and sort of in a secular sort of way like god help me and yeah you know those kinds of prayers but i'd never prayed a life-changing prayer i'd never prayed god change me it always been about changing everybody else it always been about changing the situation or changing the things i i thought i didn't have control over but it was the first time i'd ever prayed that god would change me mm. and uh and he did so for the next two years i wrestled with what that meant. And um, I can remember leaving high school and going to college. I went to Georgia Tech. And, um, and I can remember going there and sitting in a couple of classes and listening to people talk about religion. And I thought, I need to understand what I, what I believe about all that. Mm-hmm. And well, I ended up changing schools. And I, went to, I, I came out to Colorado right out here. I went to Colorado State University. So in 74, I, uh, I started attending a Bible study on Tuesday nights. The truck driver used to come in to um, Moby Gym up there, and he would on Tuesday nights he would teach a Bible study, and there were about 400 kids in that Bible study. And I went in there one night, listened to him, and I thought, you know what? He knows what I feel. I, I was feeling those things, but I didn't know what, what they were. Yeah. And he got me reading the Bible. So I, I, I went from under a basic upbringing in church to conversion experience and then to actually reading the Bible mm-hmm. and realizing, well, there's more to this than information. This is life change stuff right here. Yeah. And this guy actually believed it. And I thought, well, if he believes it, I need to at least talk, I need to think about this. So that's what happened. And it was there that I started seeing my faith become real yeah. in a lifestyle, life change sort of way. And uh, then when I graduated from uh, CSU, I started a business. I, was in the constru- I started a construction company right out here in Colorado. And we, we did hardscape for, for commercial and residential and um, hired a bunch of guys. I had a business partner. And, uh, you know, we start our own business. And so it was there. And he was a Christian. So I began to realize that, you know, if he knows what's going on and this guy knows what's going on, I need to get in on this game. And it was through that that I began to think, you know, I might like to do this for a living. I, want, I feel like God's maybe calling me to this. Hmm. And it was really an interesting time of that leaving some of my dreams behind and following Christ. And I realized, my, this thing is 
this is real. This is real. And as a result of that, um, I, you know, I left the construction business. And in uh, 19, uh, 1977, I surrendered to the ministry and I realized I needed to prepare. Well, the girl I was dating in Georgia at the time, when I was back in Atlanta, I'd moved back to Georgia, took a job with a construction company there. And uh, I was dating this gal and she thought I was in the, she thought I was gonna be a project manager for a construction company. Well, then I came to her one night and I said, what would you think if I went in the ministry full time? She goes, you're kidding me. I said, yeah, I'm thinking about going into ministry. And she goes, not as a youth pastor, right? I said, well, I don't know. What's a youth pastor? <laughs> well, she had graduated from a Christian college, and she had pretty much sworn she was never going to marry a preacher. Yeah. Well, she fell in love with me, and then she had no choice. <laughs> that was 45 <laughs> years ago. So, um, so that was my journey in the ministry calling. But going back to my time in Danbury, when I was growing up, I realized that it was during that time that my whole family was going through a spiritual renewal. So my brother and my mom had become Christians. They were growing in their faith. I had become a Christian, but then what about my dad? You know, he'd been raised in a Greek Orthodox church. Mm -hmm. He'd sung in the Episcopal choir when he was a kid. And yeah. He went to church. I mean, we always went to church, but, you know, it's kind of like, you know, I, I, I understood the... I understood the lyrics, but I didn't understand the music. Mm -hmm. And I think and it was my mom and I were um, visiting together when I was a student at Georgia Tech, and she was down visiting me during spring break. Hey, and my dad was home, and this little church planting pastor up in Connecticut just knocked on my dad's door at the house while we were all gone. And he went in and talked to my dad and led my dad to Christ. Mm. So then in 1974, when he, he became a Christian, then our whole family were now were believers. And my dad took off. And How for so? The, well, his, he really believed what he said. And he was always a man of his commitments, but, you know, it was like, Dad, you're different. Yeah. And he had become so changed that his perspective on things was moved from a, a survival profit sort of motive mm -hmm. to my life has more meaning and purpose than that. And we saw that change in my dad and it totally impacted my brother and I. Really? And, uh, really? and as a result of that, for the, all the years we were in ministry, he was constant supporter, our biggest cheerleader, prayer partner. Wow. And so That's my dad, you. who was a loving dad, when Jesus came in, to his experience and transformed him, it totally changed what we understood to be real faith. And so my dad, not knowingly, actually became our mentor of faith because of what, mm -hmm. how radical it had wow. and impacted his wow. life. Wow. Wow. So it was pretty cool. Let's talk about those ministry years. So uh, you said you ended up in Southern California. Yeah, in I ended 80s, up in Southern California. Where, where, where'd so, you start? Well, I started in Atlanta. When I left, uh, when I got in the ministry, and actually when I got to Atlanta, I started uh, attending First Baptist Church in Atlanta. And um, a very obscure, little-known pastor named Charles Stanley <laughs> was the pastor. And uh, I started attending there. And I found myself going to church on Sunday morning with a notebook and a Bible and taking notes 
I mean, copious notes about what he was saying every week. And I was mulling over this and, and thinking about it. And, and I would then recopy all of his notes. And I, my parents bought me a loose leaf Bible and I started doing it in the loose leaf. And I would insert the messages into the Bible that he, that they had given me this loose leaf Bible. And I found myself just studying. And I took a course in Greek on Moody Bible Institute by mail. They didn't have internet. They didn't have all that stuff. You, yeah. They'd send you a, a lesson. You did the lesson, sent it back. And I started taking that. And I realized God had called me to something. And I wasn't quite sure what it was going to be. Mm-hmm. And so uh, when I, I surrendered the call, that was uh, July of uh, 77, um, I walked forward and I, I told Dr. Stanley that I'd, I felt like I was calling me the ministry. He said, well, go over there and sit down on the front row. So when the service was over, now there's 2,000 people in this place. And he said, uh, after the service was over, he, and he was kind of closing remarks, he said, I want you to come back up here, young man, come back up here. So he called me back up, and he wow. sticks a microphone in my face, and wow. he says, now, uh, you believe God's called you to the ministry? I said, yes, sir, I do. I, I think he has. He says, you realize that could take you to any place in the world. Are you ready to go wherever God could lead you? I said, well, what are you going to say? I mean, you're in the middle of all these people. You say, no, I'm not going. Yeah. No, I said, yeah, absolutely, sir. I'm, I'm ready to go wherever God leads. He says, you got a girlfriend? I mean, right there in front of everybody. I said, well, yeah, I do. I do. And he goes, you willing to leave your girlfriend to follow the Lord? I said, yeah, I'm willing to do it. Well, at the time, the girl I was dating, who's now my wife, 44 years, didn't know I was talking about her. In front of a 2,000-member right. church. And so afterwards, that night, uh, she asked me in the parking lot. That's where we met after the service. Yeah. He'd say, she asked me in the parking lot. I said, were you talking about me? And I said, well, yeah. She said, well, what does that mean to you? I said, well, what are you asking me? Are you dumping me? <laughs> and uh, she said, uh, I said, uh, she said to me something like, well, um, if you're going to go in the ministry full time and you're dating me, do you expect me to go with you? I said, well, yeah. So you were talking about me? And I said, yes. I said, well, I'd like to see where that, I'd like to see where that leads. And don't you know, uh, six weeks later, I proposed. <laughs> Nine months after that, we got married, and that was 44 years ago last month. Congratulations. So, um, yeah, so those early ministry years then took us from marriage in 78. We served on, we went to Western Seminary in Portland, Oregon for two years. I studied in uh, pastoral ministry there. Came back for an internship that was supposed to last during the summer, and then uh, it ended up lasting seven years. I stayed on staff at First Atlanta for seven years, and uh, wow! And everybody what was like? there. What was that like being around? Found Charles. Yeah, Doctor Stanley and all that. It was the I, most. I, I spent fifteen years working for Doctor Dobson. Well, you understand. And in yeah. the broadcast department, we we got access to him that. That yeah. not not many people did, and right. as the chief audio engineer, I got to see him in a way that very few people there at Focus well, or Family Talk. Got fortunately, to see him. Uh, because of the kind of guy he was, he was always pretty much 
on a personal level, he's pretty much to himself. Yeah. Uh, he loved photography, loved travel. And really? He, that was really important to him. And, and he, he loved his family, and, and he raised his family the way he felt like he should. And we all looked at him with, with a great sense of admiration because he was, I mean, he was candid about his life. I mean, he... He was he was really honest. I mean, there were struggles. I mean, he he told us what the ministry meant that you were going to be point person in this this effort in the in the kingdom. And he said, the goose at the front gets all the wind, so mm-hmm. you better be ready. And so he's very 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 much reminded us that you know we were in this we were in this together. And I spent that summer doing street ministry in Atlanta and um, learned a lot about um, homosexuality and lifestyles of that, uh, people that were, you know, down and out and addictions and drugs. And, yeah. Because that was Midtown Atlanta at the time. So I got a chance to really learn so much about ministry during that. Mm. So I had become the associate pastor of evangelism and world mission for the church, and I was on a regular basis commissioning and sending men and women to places all over the world to serve the Lord. We'd have an annual missions conference and a regular focus, and we were constantly seeing God. I was seeing people getting going everywhere in the world uh, and starting churches and ministering. And then I realized one day I came home and I was praying and. And God said, well, you know, you've been sending all these people. I, I think I'm going to send you. Are you ready for that? Mm. And I said, well, I told you before, I am changed. I'll go wherever you want me to go. Yeah. So I told my wife, and we'd been praying anyway about what the future was, because we'd been there seven years, and had a good ministry there. And But God was stirring us for something. Yeah. And so... Um, I called a friend of mine in California that was the director of missions in Orange County, and I said, you know, I've got to go back to finish my degree, and I'd like to do that at Golden Gate Seminary, but in the meantime, I'd like to start a church. And he said, well, that's that's great. Come on out. Let's go. We'll help you. He said, we'll commit $300 a month to you if you'll come out here and get started. And I said, well, well, I'll I'll come. But So I went, I, I, uh, went out met with Doyle and um, he said, I want you, somebody I want you to meet. And I said, well, who's that? And he said, I want you to meet Rick Warren. He said, uh, <laughs> Rick started a church down the road here and he said, you ought to talk to him because he's about a year or so ahead of you. <laughs> Boy, that's a great cigar. So, uh, so Rick and I spent the day together talking about it and he said, listen, I'd like you to come on staff but you're going to have to raise your own support. And I said, uh, I think I want to start a church. He said, okay, I'll help you. Mm. He said, uh, and I'll meet with you once, once a month. We'll wow. pray together. I'll tell you what I'm learning. Wow. Whatever you want to do, you can do whatever you, whatever. I'll help you any way I can. Wow. So then I went and I talked to Doyle again. He said, I said, Rick will help me. So he said, well, Rick will help you. He said, when you, Rick helps you, he means it. Yeah. And so uh, he said, but I want you to meet one other person. This is Mike Carlisle. Mike's now the director of missions, uh, the associational missionary strategist for 
the San Diego Baptist Association down yeah. in San Diego. I'm going to see Mike next week. And Mike was pastoring Capistrano Valley Church at the time. And so I went down and talked to Mike, and I told him where I was, what I'd been doing, going to seminary and everything. And he said, well, come on down here. We'll sponsor you. So that church sponsored me $1,500 a month. Wow. So I had wow. $2,000 a month sponsorship to get the church started in San Clemente. Wow. We started the church in 88. Well, we actually started the prayer group in 87. And then in 88, we launched November of 88. How old were your kids at the time? My kids were six and four. Okay. And, um, and so I finished my degree at Golden Gate and then launched the church. I finished in December of the eve- previous year and then we started the church. And our prayer group was seven people, eight people. And we said, well, let's start. I mean, let's get going. Yeah. They were all on fire. So yeah. we did. We started Mar-, Mar Vista Community Church. And we grew to about 225 in the first six years. And then um, and I felt like I was a little bit separated from my family back east. And so um, my mother-in-law had had a heart attack. Mm-hmm. And then my dad had had some health issues. Yeah. And so we started praying, Lord, if you want to get us closer to Atlanta again, then we would be open to moving back east. So at that point, I brought on a co-pastor. Your parents still in Connecticut at they the were, time? They had moved to Georgia to okay. be uh, near us, actually, when we were on staff. Got it. And then we moved to California. Yeah. Uh, that wasn't the best of times. Um, took their grandchildren with them, with us. And sure enough, the Lord opened the door for us to move back east to Charlotte. And the co-pastor that had come on staff had taken over the church, and the church was doing fine. But there was another church in the community that was struggling. They didn't have, uh, they, they had a pastor, but they didn't have real elder leadership. They didn't have strong church leadership. Yeah. So um, my co-pastor and the pastor of the church decided to get together. They merged and, and uh, started Heritage Christian Fellowship, which goes on to this day. And they're at 1,800 or 2,000, wow. something like that. Yeah. In San Clemente. So they're doing great. And it was, it was, a, it was the obvious, the affirmation that it was the right time yeah. for us to move. Yeah. yeah. And so we moved back to Charlotte, and I served on staff at an evangelical Presbyterian church. Now, you understand, I've been, I've been a Baptist all my converted life. Right. Yeah. But when I went to this church, the pastor, I told the pastor, I said, you, you know, I'm, a, I'm, I'm, I'm Baptist. I'm not a Presbyterian. He goes, I don't know. He said, I really am too. He said, I think you should baptize. The, I think you should baptize believers too. So sure enough, over the next five years, he transitioned that church to become independent. Yeah. And I served that staff at that church for 20 years, almost 20 years. Yeah. Then. Um, and during that time, you know, God used it to be a, it really was a, it really was a, a transition of sorts for me because I realized that being a Christian wasn't something you did by denomination. You did it by, by calling. Yeah. You served where God called you. And so I really felt like that was a, turning point for me because I had never been I've been a senior pastor in a church start but I'd never been a senior pastor of a church yeah so um, I left the ministry I was in 
and it was in 2012 and then the Lord really showed me that one of my interns who had started the church needed me to come and get involved in his body. Yeah. So my intern from yeah. the previous church hired me on staff with him <laughs> as pastoral care pastor. And uh, I served with him for three years. Then the Lord called me to a senior pastor role out in, out in the country a little bit. And then up to the present day where I'm now contracting with Christian ministries to, to advance ministering to pastors, pastor to pastor. Yeah. And uh, I really feel like God's, that's a sweet spot for me right now. That's wonderful. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah. Now, since you've retired from the ministry, quote unquote, say retired. Yeah, because I'm, I'm not retired. Not at all. I'm busier you, now you, than I ever you, was. You got you actually bought some cigar lounges. You bought one cigar lounge and then you had a whole bunch and yeah. you got out in twenty sixteen. Yeah, we uh we, we bought one in two thousand six down in South Carolina. Yeah. And then got that up and going and worked that, that for about a year. That was in was in Greenville, South Carolina. About when? Two thousand six. Two thousand six. In two thousand seven we uh started one, we opened one in in uh Charlotte, South now, were Side. You, were you? I was still in. The, I was still in the ministry. Okay. Uh, what got? What, your full-time ministry, and then you do this cigar thing on the side. Where did that yeah. come from? Well, and how did the opportunity come? Yeah, it's good. Um, so I began to see that men were really not connecting. Men's groups were hard to get. Men were not coming to church. Men, men were not accepting leadership roles. There were, it was just a, there was this hole in the culture where men were stepping up to responsibilities that I think are basic. And there was really no place for them to be safe. They almost had to be in a, in a AA group or a CA group or some sort of addiction or whatever to get in a group. And um, and then you try to get them to go to a marriage retreat and all the wives would go and the guys would find a reason why they didn't want to go. <laughs> so I realized that there was one thing that I could see guys getting together around all the time and that was a cigar. Yeah. And, uh, and I saw the impact of conversation around cigars that was notable. I mean, clearly a vehicle for social interaction. Yeah. And so I thought, well, if I could create a social experience then with cigars, then I'm going to try to do it. You're bringing men in. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the, that was the genesis of it. Yeah. And as a result of that, I, I started the process of uh, forming these cigar lounges and then I had to fund them because you, you have to have resources to pay for the yeah the real estate. Yeah. So we started retail stores. So we started men's gift and cigar stores. Yeah. And um, and we just started doing that, and it was a way for us to connect with men and do the yeah. things that we're doing. And you opened up a or you bought you opened a few and you bought a few more. And how many did you have in total? Ended up with five, helping out with one in Georgia north side of Atlanta, and then we tried to contribute to that, some of the same vision. Yeah. 
And then, uh, then in 2014, 2016, we started to um, look for other things that that we were interested in. So we started that. We started that, the transferring of all that to other entities. Yeah. And uh, in 2016, I basically got out. Why'd you get out? Well, I really wasn't good at retail business. Why? Why do you think? Because I couldn't give it 120% of my life. Uh, I really felt like I was in ministry full-time, and then this was more like a kind hobby. Kind of a side thing. Yeah, and, and you can't do business as a hobby. It needs to be your business. And I realized that it was not fair for my wife to do it. It wasn't fair for anybody else to depend on. I had good people working with me, but it wasn't what I really wanted to do. So... Slowly, we we exited out of that experience and end up getting back full time in ministry. Plus, my kids had gotten married. Yeah, they were starting to have grandkids, and frankly, I'd rather spend time with my grandkids than do anything else. <laughs> so there was a lot of contributing factors that ultimately, I think, made me think differently. Now, in 2019. I started thinking about getting back involved again, but it wasn't until a year ago or so, a year and a half ago, that we started another business uh, in the cigar brokerage import side. And yeah. so now I'm now I'm doing some of that in the Virginia, Maryland, D.C. area. I have a couple of partners up there. My brother and I are in business with, up there, <laughs> so that's why we call our company Brothers Solutions and Imports. Nice. Now we're going to branch into coffee, so that's going to be a new thing. So. We're going to start importing coffee from yeah. a couple other countries that you normally don't get coffee from. Yeah. yeah. Very cool. Now, you're doing contract work for a bunch of ministries that you rattled off. Yeah. Family Research Council. Yeah. North Carolina Family Policy. Ed Choice. So, part of that is because I really still feel the need for men to connect. And so, and I'm my passion and burden is for pastors who haven't didn't have what I had. I had support all the way through my ministry, which allowed me to really feel like not only had God called me there, but he was, he wasn't going to, you know, the scripture says he that calls you will also do it. Yeah. I really believed God would do it. Yeah. And he did. He provided me with support and, and I don't mean financial as much as I, I had that, but also just the support of God really connecting men, connecting pastors. So sure enough, through the years, contacts had become, and so over the years, I really found myself networking with pastors of all denominations from different walks of life, race, creed, background, nation nation of origin. Mm. So all of that, because I just don't have those innate, maybe those innate biases, I mean, I was raised in a family where my dad was Greek, my mother's German. My dad was Greek Orthodox, my mother's German Lutheran. They got married Episcopalian. They went to a Church of Christ, and then they they were born again, went to a Baptist church, Presbyterian church, independent church. And so I've served in three different denominations. I've been ordained in three different denominations. I mean, I feel like I don't have that innate bias that you might normally have if you've only seen it from one perspective. Denominational territorialism. Yeah, I don't have that. Yeah. I mean, I'm, 
I mean, my doctrine aligns probably better with Baptist, but the kingdom is not about being Baptist. Yeah. I've said this on the podcast numerous times, but those years working for Dobson, every denomination under the sun were there. And, and some of the most awesome conversations I would have were with the guys in the broadcasting and women in the broadcasting division. We just sit down and talk, you know, okay, okay, so what, do, what exactly do you believe? Okay, on, on this one fine point over here, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that, but I know you. Right. And I love you. Right. And we sweat and bleed and cry together here in these trenches. And so, huh, it really expanded my, the scope of my, of, of my vision in terms of yeah. everything that the body well, of, I the was body by, of yeah, really that's right. encompasses. Yeah, that's exactly. It, it, it just opened you up to new perspectives. I think I was blessed to have the likes of Charles Stanley, David Chadwick, Rick Warren, yeah. Mike Carlisle, and many others who were not so denominationally tied that their heartbeat was for the kingdom. And they were kingdom-minded people. Yeah. And that that's yeah. that's what I've it's been huge. That's huge. That's what's transformed my thinking about ministry. Yeah. Tom Cacadellis. Let's get to rapid fire questions. Sounds good. Rapid fire. Fire. How's that stick treating you? you this trick you- is it, this this stick is a little bit of work, but I think it's cuz the moisture in my it's been in my box in my travel box for a little bit and it's not it's a little dry, but it's delightful. When did you first try cigars or pipe? So uh, I first, I really, I got my first experience with a cigar when I was 16. And then I didn't have another cigar until I was, let's see, 1998. Wow. I was on my 20th wedding anniversary. And I got so sick, I thought I'd never have a cigar again. Because <laughs> I swallowed the smoke. Oh, gosh. Oh, man. So my, my oh. wife saw me in a fetal position trying Ratchet. to make it through the night. And she said, I don't think, I think he's cured. No, it didn't cure me. And now I had to fix it. So that was that. And then uh, I think I really actually enjoyed my, my first cigar, my back porch, probably about the year 2000. Yeah. You ever try a pipe? Yeah. Too much work. <laughs> That's what most people say. Yeah, I just I, I've got pipes and I like them. My yeah. grandfather on my mother's side, German one, he he smoked a pipe. My uncle smoked a pipe, but too much work. Cigars are so easy. What's your favorite cigar? Probably the one I'm smoking. But um, <laughs> it's a great answer. So it changes all the time, but. If somebody says, what cigar do you want to smoke tonight? If I could get you one, what would you want to smoke? It'd probably vary a bit depending on a couple things, but the Liga Pravada number nine would probably be one. Uh, That's Padron, a popular one. Padron 64 Anniversario. Yeah. The Partiga Serie D Cuban. Cubano Limitado by Casada. And then the My Father... Um, Le Bijou, 1922. What's your best dollar-for-dollar dollar cigar? Diesel. 
Where's your go-to place to get your smokes? My own humidor. (laughs) 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 Favorite liquid pairing with your smoke? Diet Dr. Pepper. Ooh, another soda guy. Nice. Most interesting person you've ever met through cigars? Michael Jordan. Let's talk Um, about that. Yeah, that was awesome. So our shop in South Park in Charlotte was right in the circle with uh, with a steakhouse and an Italian restaurant. Yeah. Nice wine bar. And so uh, one night I, I realized that when Mike was having a cigar over at uh, was having a cigar over at uh, the um, Double Eagle Steakhouse right across the way. So I thought, well, I'm going to go introduce myself. So I went in my stash and I knew he smoked he smokes two cigars basically, a Hoya, Hoyo de Monterey Churchill, and then he smokes the Padron 64 Anniversario. So I had Padron 64s in my box. And um, so I went and grabbed a couple. I grabbed a couple of my father's and a couple of things, and I went over to the steakhouse. And um, of course, he's you know pretty well guarded. Yeah. So it's not like you just walk up to Michael and sit down and yeah. have to yeah. hand him some cigars. So, so I walked over and there was obviously Ed, Tony was there as bodyguard, and so I said, uh, I "said Tony, I didn't know Tony at the time, but I got to know him later." Yeah. But I said, "Sir, I, I, you know, I, I've got a couple. I own the cigar shop over here, so I'd like to give Michael some cigars." Yeah. I said, "Sure, go he's, he's fine." And so I went over to Mike and I said, uh, I said, I just wanted you to know you're certainly welcome to come over and have a cigar anytime you want. We're right over here and yeah. you know, if there's anything I can get for you, I'd like to, but I'd like to just introduce myself and here's a couple sticks. Yeah. He said, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Nothing much happened, but yeah. a couple months later, Dave, his uh, pilot comes in and says, uh, Michael's just come into town and he, He's going to come over and he wants to smoke a cigar. And I said, well, great. <laughs> so uh, so Tony and Michael show up and his publicist comes and they all come into the lounge and everybody's like, their jaws drop and their eyes get wide open. Yeah, yeah. And I see, he said, uh, he said, hey, Tom, it's good to see you again. And I said, well, welcome, Michael. I'm glad you're here. And he said, I said, come on in. And so that started a, a friendship that evolved over the couple years that he would do that and and then one day he uh he comes to the shop and he says uh he says hey tom what do you got in your stash i said well what do you want mike i said you know what do you want he said well he says wait a minute he says i got cigars so he reaches over and gets his you know members only jacket i think he had or something like that he pulls out a two stick travel humidor yeah he's got in his pocket he opens up and he says here have one it's a Hoya de monterey churchill he hands it to me yeah he says let's just have a cigar yeah i got him today he said i said well i'll tell you what i know what he drinks and so i have a bottle of it in my locker in the inside and i said um i said i'll get you a little something to drink we'll sit here and talk he goes sure that sounds great so we sit out on the patio and everybody's walking by there. They're not believing who's there, you know. So it was like, it's probably 9 o'clock at night. So we close at 11. 
11 o'clock, we're still sitting there. Everybody's gone, yeah. closing the shop. And we sat for two, two and a half hours talking about life, sports, stuff that he, you know, that he was comfortable talking about. And cigars, of course. And, and he asked me about the business and what I liked about it and everything. And never forget it. Wow. It was great. Wow. It was great. That's amazing. Best place you've ever smoked? I would say probably uh, uh, Monte Cristo number two on the beach in Havana, Cuba. Ooh. I did it three nights in a row. Wow. Yeah. Star Wars or Star Trek? Or neither? <laughs> nah, not a really. All right. Favorite food? Well, again, it, it kind of depends, but I guess I would, I pro, somebody would probably say I like Lou Malnati's pepperoni pizza from Chicago. And so I, I buy them, and I buy them in packs of six, and I have them shipped from Chicago to North Carolina. I, I like pizza, but I like Italian food. So I would have to say that if I'm picking, I'm probably going to have some sort of an Italian dish. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Dogs, cats, neither, or both? Dogs. Springer Spaniels. Nickname growing up? TK. 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 My initials. TK. Or CAC. Most of the time, TK. Yeah. What's one unusual fact that few people know about you? Somebody asked me that not too long ago. I went to the same military high school that Donald Trump went to. <laughs> Are you a reader? Yes. Favorite one to three books not titled the Holy Bible? Pilgrim's Progress, the uh, story of uh, George Whitfield, biography, and... Um, I don't know. The one I'm reading right now is called The Cure by John Lynch. Mm, it's great. Mm. Are you an early riser, a night owl, or average? I'd say more average. I'll get up early when I'm when the Lord wakes me up early. I'll get up early and start writing. I like to write early in the morning, so that's important. But but I'll stay up a little bit later because. My wife and I like to watch a couple of shows, and sometimes we'll stay up later to do it. If you could live anywhere, where would that be? I don't know. It's a tough beating where I live right now, Pinehurst, <laughs> North Carolina. I live on the fourth hole of a golf course, so it's kind of hard to beat that. Who's the, been the greatest influence in your life? Your dad? Yeah. My dad. Yeah. There's no doubt. I mean, from a human standpoint, he still lives on. I mean, here I am, 60, 67 years old, and I still spend more time quoting my dad than I do any, anything but the Bible. <laughs> what do you do for self-care, to rest, to recharge? I do two things. Uh, I usually go on about a four-day retreat to uh, read and rest once a year, try to find a spot to get away. We're beach people, not really mountain people. 
So I try to find a place where we can get away. This year we, we went to Aruba. I spent nine days there. I'm a big fan of spending enough time that you can actually be away from yeah. what you're actually doing. Yeah. So the pandemic hindered our trip to Barbados back in December of 19, uh, 20. Yeah. So I ended up going to Aruba last year, or in March. Mm. Yeah. Into sports? Yeah, I love sports. Who are your teams? Well, I went to Georgia Tech and Colorado State University, so there's really nothing to cheer for there. No, they've, they've, CSU has a, had a good team, a couple good teams this year. Yeah. Georgia Tech had a really good baseball team. They typically do. Yeah. Um, but I like college football. It isn't as tainted yet yeah. as I think it will become. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, but, I, but I like college football a lot, so I'm big in that. I'm, I, I, I grew up uh, being a New York Giant when I was real, real young, I was a New York Giant fan, but their coach, their one of the players was Tom Landry, and when he retired, he became the starting coach for the Dallas Cowboys. And so in 1960, I switched teams and became a Dallas Cowboy fan, and I've been a Dallas Cowboy fan ever since. I go from year to year deciding whether they're Cowboys or Cowgirls, but uh, they're still my team. Baseball, I, I grew up a. Uh, all my idols were Yankees, but I was a Red Sox fan. So I, I love the Red Sox. I follow baseball probably more than anything. I like professional golf. I'm a big fan of, of old golfers. I love following what, what they accomplished. Love Tiger Woods. Amazed at what he was able to accomplish in a really short career, actually. It's not over yet, but it's not what it will be, what it ever was. So I'm really, I'm a big fan of of, uh, of professional golf. I, I love it. I love golf. Yeah. So that's it. I like fast pitch softball, so I watch the girls' softball teams. I'm becoming a, a fan of the Premier League because it's on at a time I can actually watch it. So I don't know. I was Somebody confronted me the other day said, what are you? Uh, I said, I'm a Manchester fan. Which one? They asked me. I said, well, Manchester United. But when Chelsea came to Charlotte a couple weeks ago, they, the Charlotte team beat them. So, you know, I could get excited about football that way. But my real heroes were Bobby Richardson. He was second baseman for the Yankees in the 60s. Bobby um, grew up in Sumter, South Carolina, lives there now. He's 88 or so, 89. He led Mickey Mantle to Christ. Mm -hmm. Bobby wrote his story about his conversion, and it was the first book I ever read. I was 10 years old. Wow. I read it off the shelf. I picked it out myself, read it, this the Bobby Richardson story, and it was my first introduction to what it meant to be a Christian. And I really, I, and I got to tell him four years ago, I told him that uh, it was his book that really did it. One Thanksgiving, I called him in the 80s, late 80s. I called him, and he answered the phone. And I said, I want to thank you. It was Thanksgiving. And I said, I've challenged my church to, our church family to, call somebody this Thanksgiving and thank them for the impact they've made on their lives. And so I called Bobby and I thanked him. Wow. That's yeah. awesome. Tom, how do you want to be remembered? Well, as a flawed human, I failed a lot of 
lot of things. I, you know, I've, like I told you earlier, I mean, I've, I've stolen something, I've wrecked something, I've, I've abused things at times. I've, uh, I've been tempted in every way you can be tempted. I've, I've been greedy about stuff and, and I think I've, you know, I've, I've certainly not been a perfect example even in my own family. But I, I would like them to remember that I never wanted it that way. I, I wanted it differently. And I, now that I'm a saint, and yet I still don't always act like one, but I'm still a saint. And that the grace of God is bigger than everything I've ever done and ever will do. Yeah. And, and that my failures and my weakness is an opportunity for the Lord to be, demonstrate his strength in my life, you know, and not, not my strength, but his strength. For his strength is made perfect in my weakness. So um, I'm happy to rejoice in my weaknesses because I know Christ will get the glory. Final three questions. What does Holy Smokes mean to you? And how has it contributed to your spiritual yeah. journey? Well, uh, Kay Harriman and uh, Owen Hill and Paul Felitas, all in different situations, introduced me to Holy Smokes. And um, back, I don't know how many years ago now. And as a result of that, I got involved with, you know, the I got acquainted. Yeah. yeah. And it now means that it's a place for guys to get connected around... Um, you know, uh, the camaraderie and the fellowship yeah. that we have in the Lord and that we can draw other men into it so that they too can discover God's amazing grace. Yeah. Mm, that's beautiful. All right. If you could have a Holy Smoke with any three people throughout history, living or deceased, who would they be? Can't name Jesus. No, no, Jesus. No, I'm, I'm not. I'm okay there. I think Daniel would be one Ooh. because I, I, I think he got as close to being fired up as anybody as, along with his buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But Daniel has always been an example to me of somebody who stood on conviction and I'd like to know him. I'd like to get to know him. Joseph, because as a man that was was uh, wrongfully accused on other on many occasions, and yet still held strong to his faith. Yeah. And then I think uh, I'd like to sit down. Uh, with your dad, one more time. Yeah, I want to sit down with my grandfather. Oh, your grandfather. Which uh, the, the immigrant? My dad's dad. Yeah. I only saw him in his later years in life, and he was not in good shape. Yeah. And I would like to. I would like to know him. Wow. Wow. You're getting emotional. Yeah.
What is it about your dad's dad? That tugs on your heart like this. I think, I think because if you love somebody in your life so much, you want to know who influenced them. Ooh. Yeah. Who, who made a difference in their lives? Right and wrong, up and down. Yeah. Who, who were the most important players? And uh, in my dad's life, I'd have to say I think my, my granddad probably was that. And I, didn't, I really didn't get to know him. Wished I could. Last question. If we're to meet one year from today, and I got a can of your Diet Dr. Pepper, yeah, and I have my Coke, what are we celebrating? My wife and I will be married 45 years, and at that point, she's been an enduring support and a patient help me and a, a loving partner. I don't... I think I'd like to end up on a, some remote island with her celebrating our pressing towards 50 years of marriage. Mm. Tom Cacadellis, thanks for being on the Holy Smokes podcast, my man. Thanks for having me, Steve. Appreciate it. Hey, everyone. I wanted to announce that we have Holy Smokes gear. That's right. We have swag. We currently have hats, shirts, stickers, like for your vehicle or your travel humidor, magnets, even branded bourbon glasses for a limited time. Go to holysmokes.club and click on the shop tab. That's holysmokes.club. I'm super proud of the shirts. They're made with Bella Canvas shirts that are soft and incredibly comfortable. The hats fit wonderfully, which can be a problem for those of us with big noggins. We plan on having a lot more to offer, like Guayabara shirts, additional t-shirt designs, beanies, polos, hoodies, cigar accessories, and much more. Check it out. And even if you don't make a purchase now, be sure to sign up for that email list as I've thrown a couple big discount coupon codes for those exclusively on that list. So click the shop tab at holysmokes.club. Thanks. Thanks.